Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. is that we're in this period in history where we are leaning into caregiving. We we need caregivers. That's just a fact. COVID-19 has flipped the world upside down for us. By the way, happy 2021. Happy New Year. I just want to say that every episode in 2021 because I really do feel like we've got good new things happening in the world as we progress. There's no better time to talk about taking care of the caregiver than now. The need for caregiving is so high and the spotlight is right on COVID-19. As schools are closed, children need care, elderly parents need care, hospitals and nursing facilities are at capacity or overflowing. We're working in stressful and risky situations, and even more importantly, totally unfamiliar territory. This has never happened in our lifetime. Starting with that, I also am committed to 2021 to having difficult conversations about racism. And so I'm going to integrate racism And I invite anybody out there to call me out, have a conversation, because I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to come across as the all-knowing around race and inequality or disproportionality. I just think that it's so important that we start having these conversations, even when we feel uncomfortable and a little bit scared. So I'm taking that challenge on for myself, and I'm going to try to integrate some ideas and concepts that I've learned and I'm learning from friends and reading and, and just expanding my worldview about race and racism. So with that, let's jump in. We're also going to talk, though, about empathy and compassion, because those are key components of caregiving. And those are two separate neural networks 
that really are at the heart of caregiving. We know that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts communities of color. Racism is alive and well, not only in our hospitals and our medical offices, but it's really in our society as a whole, which has been uncovered dramatically and almost instantaneously on a broad scale with COVID-19. share a book that I read with you by Dr. Bettina Love, and I want to just shout her out because, man, this is one awesome book. It's called We Want to Do More Than Survive, and it's a book for educators, but really, it's a book for anybody. It's it's just a really great book that unintentionally really talks about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and the buffering influences that are needed in a community to build resiliency. So I invite you to read that book and really learn from Bettina Love because it's it's exceptional. Now I'm going to share a story with you about a Facebook video that I saw, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago about a female doctor named Dr. Black. She was a treating physician during the pandemic. She's African-American, obviously a woman, and she finds herself infected with COVID-19. As she becomes ill, she goes to the hospital, but she's sent home, sort of disregarded and treated as irrelevant when she arrives at the hospital. But then she gets sicker, and she has to return to the hospital, and this time she's admitted. And she suffers from severe, severe neck pain, and she talks about this in her video. Dr. Black needed pain medication. Narcotic pain medications would have likely been totally appropriate, but we've become really hypersensitive to the opioid crisis. And I don't say hypersensitive to be insensitive to our opioid addiction problems, but I want to say our hypersensitivity because I think that the focus is on the symptom of addiction rather than the root cause of trauma. Because we know that trauma is what leads to self-medication and addiction in many, many cases. That's what the ACEs study has taught us as long as as well as many, many other research stories. So Dr. Black has severe neck pain. She's admitted to the hospital. She's in care. And she expresses how she was treated like a drug-seeking patient in the hospital when she asked for pain relief medicine. And I've also learned this from conversations with some of my friends who have shared with me that as a black or a brown person, that narcotic pain medications or opioid pain medications are often either not offered Or when they are offered, there's this underlying message behind it that if you accept them, that you're a drug seeker or a drug addict. And as you can imagine, that would feel terrible. Now, I want to flip sides here for a second. I'm a white woman. I'm a doctor. 
I was a patient in a hospital having a spinal fusion in July of this year, or last year, 2020. And guess what? I spent four days in the hospital and I had narcotic pain medication. And I cannot imagine going through that experience without having the accessibility to the pain medication I needed to recover and heal and to be less traumatized from that surgery. It breaks my heart when I hear stories about people who are questioned and frankly treated inhumanely because they're in pain around this opioid narcotic crisis that we're in because of systemic racism. So I wanted to put that out there as an experience that maybe if you happen to be a person of dominant culture, you haven't experienced that. And I invite you to have a conversation with a friend or just a you know somebody that you know who's from a more marginalized community if that has been their experience. You know, difficult conversations are important for all of us to have at times so we can learn more about ourselves, more about our community, and more about others. Dr. Black had been taking care of people with COVID-19 on the front lines all the way until she herself fell ill. The fact that she left this world in this way, being denied the medications that she needed and the care that she deserved breaks my heart. And I know that we can do so much better. Her story for me really revealed all of our vulnerability and It elicited some shame and guilt for myself of being a person of dominant culture who has not experienced this kind of treatment in the medical environment. And I want to hit that head on this year. Like, that's my commitment to everybody. Dr. Black really, hello, she's a doctor. She got through medical school as an African-American woman. You can imagine that's harder to do than going through medical school as a person of dominant culture. I'm sorry, it just is true. That's how that's how the world is. She herself probably could have treated herself better and gotten better care herself in the hospital. Why? Because of racism. Maybe, probably, unconscious, but still systemic racism. Another phrase that we've been hearing a lot about is compassion fatigue. And this is one of those places where words matter. And I'm going to talk to you today about changing our language. Because compassion fatigue, based on the neuroscience research, really isn't a thing. And we need to make sure that our words match up with what we're actually talking about. And so the neuroscientists who study this call it empathic distress fatigue. Yep, that's the phrase. We're going to call it empathic distress fatigue, EDF. So what the hell? We need to really get a grip, start to make some changes, and care for the caregivers by starting with understanding the difference between compassion and empathy on a very, very conscious level. Lots of times, we don't need to know what our brain is doing or thinking, but in this case, it turns out we do. Think about it. Your brain regulates your heartbeat, regulates your temperature, your body temperature, your blood pressure. Nobody's consciously thinking about that beat by beat, moment by moment. However, 
compassion and empathy are two very different things, and we're going to dig into this so you're going to understand the difference. I read an article. The researchers of this study are named Anne Hoffmeyer, Kate Kennedy, and Ruth Taylor. And they did some neuroscience research around self-care and comparing the difference between compassion and the neural networks of compassion to empathy and that network pattern. We're going to shift a bit, but I'm going to continue to try to highlight situations where I see injustice and racism so we can all begin to be more aware of it, call it out, question it, and grow from our own enlightenment around these inequalities. Neuroscience has taught us that empathy and compassion each have their own distinct brain patterns through fMRI imaging. So what does that mean? It means that when we look at your brain through an, through an MRI machine, when we elicit compassion, one neuropathway lights up. When we elicit empathy, a different one lights up. Okay, that's interesting because if they're the same, then the same pathways would light up, right? Words matter. Empathy means the ability to feel with others when we're exposed to their distress and suffering. So empathy on an MRI machine are driven by a space in the brain that house mirror neurons. And maybe you've heard of mirror neurons or maybe you haven't, but mirror neurons sort of think about it, the phrase feel with. When I feel something and I share it with somebody else, particularly a baby, we're teaching each other to regulate on the same pattern. So it's sort of this synchronizing experience with another person. And that's important. That's very important to attachment. It's important to love. It's important to, and when I say love, I mean the science of love. It's important that we can feel with people at certain times. But if we try to feel with people as if we are them all the time, we're going to collapse. We can't handle that. That is way, way too much. And that's what I mean when I use the word empathic distress. That's what these researchers are talking about. All right, so let's shift to compassion. Compassion means to feel for others in pain and respond to them with warmth, empathic concern, and the capacity to understand their perspective. Okay, now we're taking a step back and we're experiencing our feelings through our perspective lens, but we're not jumping into the life experience of the other person's pain and suffering. So what compassion does is it leads us to provide pro-social behaviors such as we're, we're like motivated and energized to act with kindness, support, and to relieve pain. You can see why compassion is super important in the medical community because if you've ever been in the hospital and you've ever had a nurse who's cared for you, this is really distinctive for me because I have had several surgeries and every time that I've ever been in the hospital in my life, I've had these phenomenal nurses, just amazing. And then somewhere around the corner pops up Nurse Ratchet. If you're too young to know who Nurse Ratchet is, look her up. But 
somebody who is just, you know, over it. They're not nice. It's all about them. And when you're in a very vulnerable state in the hospital, we need nursing care and medical care that comes from a place of compassion because we are vulnerable rather than a place of empathy because it's not really empathy. It becomes, the person becomes so worn down that they can't really take care of anybody else because they're so depleted themselves. I'm not saying that ever that that's the majority of my experience. Like I said, most of my t- my experience in a hospital situation has been everybody's been phenomenal and then one person shows up out of nowhere who's clearly experiencing distress and needs to take care of themselves. All right, so what does it mean and what do you need to recognize the difference between compassion versus empathy? Well, with compassion, you need three things. Theory of mind, which is like perspective taking. The ability for one to really imagine another person's situation and be motivated to act compassionately, but to not jump in the mud with them. If you think about it, you're taking the perspective of somebody's situation, but you're not taking that situation on. The second piece is self-awareness. This is really important, and I think this is where aces and trauma really come into play in terms of compassion and empathy. We we need to be aware of the self-other difference. You know, I am me, you are you, and there's a distinction, there's a differentiation between us, and that's good and that's okay. But sometimes we get caught up in our codependent minds due to our aces and we feel like, oh, we have to make everybody happy. And in the process of making everybody happy, we deplete ourselves and there we go down that path. So self-awareness is being able to keep your feet on the ground and recognize yourself as a separate being from everyone else. Emotional regulation is the ability to separate yourself from somebody else's troubles or problems and remain self-compassionate. You know, there are so many things in the world that break my heart and make me want to do things differently, like particularly the friggin' commercial about the dogs freezing in Minnesota because their owner left them outside in the snow chained to a, you know, pole you know, that that upsets me, but I really have to keep that in perspective because I can't do anything about that. And I don't really believe that my 23 cents a day is going to do one thing for any of those darling precious dogs on the commercial. So keeping it in perspective is very important to emotional regulation Because if I got caught up in, and if you know me, you know that I am a big dog lover. So if I got caught up in the story of every one of those dogs, I would be, I would own a dog shelter and probably never let anyone adopt a dog. I would become a dog hoarder. That's about it. (laughs) So anyway, back on track. The ability to separate yourself from someone else's or something else's troubles and remain self-compassionate, that's the skill of compassion. And it leads to resiliency. Because what people need from us when 
they're vulnerable is our compassion. They need our strength. They need our resilience, our ability to overcome adversity. They don't need our empathy where we jump into the trauma and the drama with them. These three steps allow us to distinguish between the unconscious sharing of a painful situation and cognitively processing it. That means really thinking it through and coming up with a plan. Like when you have a plan and a purpose and an ability to act on something, you feel purposeful and purposeful leads to resilience. Back to the MRI studies. MRI studies show that the neurological areas activated with compassion are linked to reward and affiliation processing. What does that mean? It means that when we're activated by compassion, we feel rewarded. We feel good, like we're getting something back for our feelings. And we feel affiliated. We feel connected to who or what it is that we're helping and supporting in any situation. And oxytocin is released, which if you've ever heard of oxytocin, it's the love it's the love chemical in the brain. It's the feel-good chemical in the brain. So that stimulates our positive feelings towards those who are suffering as we attempt to help and support them. Another amazing fact about compassion is that when we activate our compassion networks in our brain, that actually protects us from stress and the depletion of our energy. That's pretty darn awesome, especially at a time when stress is just flying everywhere. When we combine this kind of looking at MRI machines and the neuroprocessing of compassion versus empathy, and we compare it to the behaviors that people exhibit, we find that when people are acting compassionately, we notice that they're helping, they're forgiving people more, and they're being reward, like they're feeling a sense of reward. So it really does match up with what we're what we're what we're looking at neurologically, what we're looking at through neuroscience and brain imaging matches up with what we're seeing in people behaviorally. So that's really a great way to sort of confirm that we're right on track about research. Over empathizing means my brain fires as if it's your brain. I'm experiencing firsthand what a patient or other person is living. That's not helpful for the other person, especially if they're in a difficult situation. Imagine that as an ICU nurse or anyone in a helping situation. Can you imagine a a doctor or ICU nurse having to experience his or her job as if they're the patient in bed one, bed two, bed three, bed four, bed five, every time they leave a room? They would be, again, collapsed in empathic distress pretty quickly. So, When we share too much suffering, we become depleted and our emotional distress increases and we become more impersonalized as a way of self-protecting. So remember, the brain, what's the brain do? It's in service of survival. Our brain is protecting us. It's smart. It's good at that. But 
when a caregiver suffers from empathic distress fatigue, their helping behavior actually decrease and their aggressive behaviors increase. So if we step back to Dr. Black, if she had a a doctor who was caring for her and she's saying, I am in severe, severe pain and I need pain medication, but her caregiver, whatever that person's role was, was in the mode of empathic distress fatigue, didn't allow that person to be compassionate towards Dr. Black. Instead, that person acted either aggressively or passive aggressively and really denied the needs that Dr. Black had at the end of her life. So doctors, nurses, clinicians, and others in helping and caregiving situations are all at risk pretty much all the time of empathic distress fatigue. And we never talk about trauma. We never talk about our own childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences in relation to how did we get into this helping profession and how do we manage our emotions when we're always dealing with everybody else's troubles. So this forces people when you're in a helping profession to sometimes adopt really a depersonalized pattern of behavior to protect yourself from having constant negative feelings. Think about it. Have you ever had a doctor who's been somewhat impersonal? Sounds like they have like really good boundaries, but at the same time, there is a balance between compassion and depersonalization. So we're, how, do we, how do we learn how to have this conversation in a way that actually makes sense? I'm hoping that this conversation is going to lead us to that, being able to understand the difference between I don't have to be so empathetic that I can't take care of myself, but that doesn't lessen my ability to be a compassionate, caring caregiver. There's MRI evidence that the ability to provide self-care to your, well, hello, obviously, to yourself is actually related to the ability to self-regulate or to have good self-regulation. Another way of saying that is grounding, like I am me. Emotional or self-regulation means that we need to learn how to manage our feelings separate from other people's feelings. That doesn't make us bad people or unkind people. In fact, it actually makes us kinder people. I like to use the word differentiation because that's what I think of when when we're talking about being separate from somebody else, but also sharing some feelings, just not all the feelings. And differentiation is critical to self-care. So when we maintain our self-other distinction, This is how we save ourselves while we care for other people. Again, I'm going to say it. I am me, you are you. Think about it. If you're the doctor taking care of, I don't know, my friend's a pediatrician. He sees 40 to 50 kids a day. I'm me, you're you. I can be loving and compassionate, but I still have to go home to my family. As a therapist, seeing anywhere from four to eight patients a day, same thing. People bring in their troubles and their difficult situations, but 
as they come to us because they know that we can stay grounded and keep our compassion without jumping into the mud with them and trying to fix and take care of everything. If somebody starts to try to take care of and fix your problem without letting you be involved, step away. What gives us power and purpose is when we have the ability to impact and change our own lives. That starts from very, very little littles all the way through our extended lifespan. When we absorb another person's suffering and negative emotions as our own, that's when we risk experiencing empathic distress fatigue. Remember, we're trying to replace the saying compassion fatigue with empathic distress fatigue. Compassion fatigue implies sort of running out of compassion as if it's a commodity. But remember, words matter and we have to say what we mean. This distinction especially matters because the strategy to ease empathic distress fatigue is also what we could refer to as compassion training. So when we actually act compassionately, when we can tell the difference and we recognize it in our body and our mind and our soul, then we can actually separate them out and our compassion fuels our ability to be empathetic but also separate. All right, so that's the neuroscience around empathy and compassion with a little bit of racism and race relations tucked in there because... Like I said, I really want us to start having these difficult conversations as we move forward. We can't go status quo anymore. We've got to address our future and our children's futures head on. We're going to talk about resilience and optimism. We are growing and changing in so many ways. And as terrible and awful and as, as COVID-19 has been in 2020, and I, I cannot even express how devastating this disease has been to so many people in terms of losing family members, being sick, being scared, having stress and abuse and just all the things that have happened. But we've also had some gems revealed to us in 2020. I certainly have. And this pandemic has really given us an ability to overcome adversity and to thrive. So we do this by facing our past and embracing our future with inspiration, education, and new relationships. And I truly, truly believe that. If I talk about anything on this show, I made a commitment to myself that it needs to have some level of inspiration, education, and a relational component to it. And that's why I invite you to communicate with me on any level, on any subject, because I don't want to back away from difficult conversations. I want to meet them head on. I invite you to connect with me. I'm just going to say that. Let's talk about the ACEs study for a minute. Again, resiliency. The ACEs study has given us the opportunity to learn about ourselves in ways that we haven't done before and to access mental health care and self-care from a totally different perspective. You're not your ACE score. 
Aces are what happen to people. Adverse childhood experiences happen to people. They are not who a person is. We can learn about ourselves and use our brain's plasticity to rewire and refire for a healthier, happier life across the lifespan. So, but we have to choose to do this for ourselves. Nobody can do this for us. They can feel like they want to do it for us. I can feel like I want to do that for somebody else. But the bottom line is, this is what we do for ourselves. My dear friend Claudia said to me the other day, I'm a believer in choice. And I said, me too, sister. We have to decide to do this ourselves. It's more than okay to choose you. And it's more than healthy to remember that you cannot cannot control or change anybody but yourself. So with that, the key point there around resiliency and optimism is purpose. That your purpose has to be your purpose. So caregiving is something that we have to do continually for ourselves and be purposeful about it. Caregiving is not about always taking care of other people. And I know people will say, well, why have little children and da-da-da? Well, being purposeful about caregiving is finding ways to teach young children how to find certain ways to self-care for themselves because we don't want to over-model for them depletion, empathic distress, fatigue, and then have them grow up and copy exactly what we've done. And we can teach young children, you know, we love our babies, we love our littles. Let's teach them how to be caregivers for us too in healthy ways by being partners and purposeful in taking care of everyone together at the same time by everybody having a job and a skill. Because that's really what being a family is. And what being a family is, is can be extended into what it means to be a community. We all row for each other. We help each other where it's important. And so, so I'm not buying the whole idea that we're destined or doomed to be buried as caregivers. We have to make the choice and then be purposeful about our decision to take care of ourselves. The best thing, this is in the next episode, but I'm going to say it here because you can't hear it enough. The most important thing a child needs in their life is a parent to be okay, a parent to be in a good spot. So if we let ourselves as parents become depleted as caregivers, we are depriving our children of what they need from us. So if there's no other reason to choose taking care of yourself, choose it for your children. Last but not least, let's talk about some actionable takeaways. Words matter. Always remember that. We're going to say compassion fatigue is out and empathic distress fatigue is in. The difference is in training your brain to lean into compassion, which means feeling for, because that activates loving support. That activates us into a purpose. And being aware that we have a perspective, we have the ability to be aware that my situation is different than somebody else's and we can ground ourselves and have 
emotional feelings about the situation without making them our situation. Empathy is, of course, necessary and great in manageable doses. But when we over-empathize, which means feeling without separation from another person, we can and do become totally codependent and we will go down with the ship. So with all this information, I'm not saying it's easy at all. It's very difficult and it's these are battles we fight our whole lives. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Try to eat right. Try to exercise. And if you don't, forgive yourself the next day. Get good sleep. One thing that we know of is when we live during stressful times, another friend of mine always says, you know, one hour spent in the hospital with somebody is like four hours in normal life. So we're kind of living in the COVID time zone, which means every hour sort of feels like four. Recognize that. Take a nap. Take a break. Get as good a night of sleep as you can. I'm also a fan of affirmations. So another takeaway is figure out what your affirmations are and say them daily to yourselves. The brain wires where the brain fires. So when we say our affirmations to ourselves, we are forcing our brain to fire in a place that it wouldn't normally fire. I'm worthy, I'm loved, I'm safe, I'm kind, I'm compassionate. Write those on a post-it note, stick them somewhere and say it as many times as you can in a day and and feel it. Try to really believe it because affirmations are one of the ways that we can use to change our brain. So I guess last but not least is that I want to say compassion is a resource for resilience. So supporting others feels good and is motivating. That's what you need to hold on to and take away recognize when there's a shift. When you're taking care of somebody and you're not feeling it, then honor your need at that point to be self-compassionate and step away because you're going down that road of over-empathizing and jumping in the mud with somebody else's situation that you don't have control over. So get off that hamster wheel. Make a rule about saying mean things to yourself. Replace Every friggin' kind, unkind saying that you have, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, change those into something new and kind that you say to yourself. Again, that affirmation list. Even if you don't fully believe it, you need to keep practicing it and say it over and over and over again. All right, so with that, I want to say go out, leave a life print, take care of yourself, Enjoy taking care of others, and I love you. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. 
We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life's stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana, with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.